Hey ladies and gentlemen, before we get started with this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, there's a little bit of house cleaning that needs to happen for not just this episode, but for the episode that will come after it. Um, unfortunately, uh, I have been a little bit stressed and uh, overwhelmed by a lot of life changes happening. Very positive things, but they still carry with them their own anxieties. As a result, uh, when putting my mic back together after a mobile recording, um, I neglected to look at the direction of my mic. And as a result, the episode you're about to hear and next uh, episode will be uh, sounding like I came through a tunnel. Unfortunately, I was speaking into the wrong side of the mic. Um, this is unprofessional and not within the standards that I wanted to set up for the show. Um, I'm not the world's greatest sound engineer or the world's greatest podcaster by any stretch, but I do try to at least provide clean, good-sounding audio as best as possible. And unfortunately, that just didn't happen because of my negligence. Um, my apologies go to Andrew Saunders, who is this week's guest, um, who wonderfully brought the subject of Hitchcock back to us. And so for me to fall short on the microphone front is egregious and not fair to him. Um, and if you want to hear more of his thoughts, uh, you know, please check out Pop Culture Brews, obviously. Um, but more importantly, you'll hear a podcaster who clearly has his shit together. <laughs> um, and apologies to next episode's uh, guest, Kev Moore, uh, who uh, worked with me while I was racked with food poisoning in addition to not being uh, uh, on the right side of the mic. Uh, again, I'm really sorry to both of my guests and to you, the listeners, who have to listen to uh, this uh tunnel sound that you're going to hear out of my voice. I've done my best to clean it up, but um, there's only so much I can do with audio that didn't go directly into the mic. That being said, though, we have wonderful conversations ahead, both on this episode and next episode, so I do hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy them. And now I will take you to Henry, who will then take it to Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, Terrible imitations of Hollywood figures in an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, Review. Have you planned your vacation yet? You've a choice between sand and sunburn, or mountain climbing and the Charlie horse. I find it all very enervating, but we should all have some kind of holiday. So... My suggestion is a quiet little tour, say about 2,000 miles. You can enjoy this wonderful vacation while seated comfortably in this theater. I promise you nothing but entertainment. 
a vacation from all your problems, as it was for me. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo goes back to sort of where it all began. Um, It it involves uh, a little bit of mystery, a little bit of tension. Um, One could say suspense, and uh, the only way you can do that is if you have some kind of master of it. Um, I, I know, how about a master of suspense? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, despite all the proclamations that I made in advance of Ballyhoo, we are going to unearth the tomb of Shamley and resurrect the one and only Alfred Hitchcock to the program. And we will begin this uh, egregious breaking of promises uh, by introducing ourselves to one of Hitchcock's most ever-present themes, the idea of the man on the run, and there is no better way to explore the man on the run than with a fantastic double bill of the 39 steps and North by Northwest. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Darling, fancy seeing you. Well, you've seen a man pass you in the last few minutes. This is the man you want, I think. Yeah, Miss, now you're a special constable. What's the idea? What are you doing As here long for? as you stay, he stays. I demand that you allow me to telephone to the High Commissioner for Canada in London. You better do that from London. You'll be there soon enough. I have the honor in presenting to you one of the most remarkable men in the world, Mr. Memory. What are the 39 steps? advertising man, not a red herring. I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders dependent upon me. And I don't intend to disappoint them all by getting myself slightly killed. Cary Grant becomes a secret agent against his will. Propelled at gunpoint onto the highest level of international intrigue and framed for murder. 
Cary Grant, running for his life, searching for a man who doesn't exist, and a secret nobody knows, and finding a blonde who has all the answers. Hello there. Tell me, why are you so good to me? Shall I climb up and tell you why? At breakneck speed, they race together toward the excitement that lies dead ahead, north by northwest. How do I know you aren't a murderer? You don't. Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, and James Mason as the man of sinister surprises. Apparently, the only performance that will satisfy you is when I play dead. In your very next role, you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. The perfect setup for suspense. With the perfect woman and the perfect crime, as Alfred Hitchcock takes you north by northwest. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1935 and in 1959, Hitchcock made films that perfectly exemplified the man on the run or an ordinary man in extraordinary circumstances, a theme that would permeate most of his work in several different forms or fashions. Yet, the 39 Steps in North by Northwest share very strong lineage, ones that could proclaim them to be source material for the other. Uh, you could say that North by Northwest is a remake of the 39 Steps, and yet the creative team behind North by Northwest seems to have not fully realized what they have done. Uh, but we should examine how these two films connect to each other, and what's more, how both of them have influenced the modern filmmaking technique and storytelling that we see today, as is this show's proclamation. And we cannot do this alone, so with me is a return guest uh, whose first appearance on Shamley Silhouette saw us running into similar territory talking about two movies that feel the same. Um, but when he's not talking about Hitchcock, he is also talking about craft beer and pop culture in a delightful blend that produces podcasting goodness called Pop Culture Brews. He is also one of the co-hosts of Surrounded by Assholes, the Mel Brooks podcast that has been... Blasting the internet away, potentially, eventually, someday. Uh, and additionally, you can hear him on Ballyhoo in previous episodes covering The Public Enemy and Little Caesar. And soon, soon, very soon, in fact, in just one minute, you're going to hear him talk more about the one and only Alfred Hitchcock. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the show the wonderful Andrew Sanders. Hello. Hello. Hey. Hello. How are you? I'm good. You have not been on your own before with me. This is this. No, is, yes. this is the first time. Are you scared? I'm a little nervous, <laughs> but uh, a little excited. Don't worry. Tyler will tell you I'm gentle. <laughs> I mean, now, now, I, I haven't been very upfront. Um, you know, we did. You were here for the Marx Brothers episode, but you chose not to speak. And I, I still feel that that was a, an interesting, bold choice for podcasting. <laughs> you know, in this famous audio-only format, you really have to break down barriers. <laughs> and not talking on a podcast, I feel like, was the ultimate artistic art 
Yes. Like, it's the equivalent of John Lennon putting together Revolution Art. <laughs> did I just compare myself to John Lennon? Yes, you Yes, did. I did. Yes. <laughs> the only difference between you and John Lennon is that John Lennon never had a honk. Like, anytime he this really needed to say something, he never had a honk. Um, there, there was no honk in Revolution 9. You're th- absolutely right. There is no honking. There is no horn blasting. Like, not, not and I'm not talking about a musical horn. I'm talking about one of them rubber <laughs> horns. Honka, <laughs> honka. Um, yeah, no. Um, uh, I guess for behind the scenes purposes, uh, uh, th- as this, this show's well to do. Um, yeah, no. Andrew's. Um, uh, Andrew was slated to be on the Marx Brothers podcast, but um, we had a. There was scheduling conflicts and you graciously gave tyler the 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 floor to do it um yeah i mean i love the marx brothers but i don't know much about the marx brothers and i was totally intent on diving in but timing just didn't allow for it so i was rather i didn't want to like just come on and like not add anything of worth right outside of I think they're funny. So, um, yeah, it was it was unfortunate, but I did really enjoy that episode. Yeah, so. no, and I and I consider it I consider you to be a firm part of that series because of the way I'm gonna <laughs> edit you in each time. And in fact in in fact, by Ballyhoo standards, you still haven't left my house because you were still there as far back as the first year anniversary episode. <laughs> I, I, I was gonna say, like, I am still stuck there from when I came and taught the man who knew too much. Yep, honk. <laughs> No, no one's seen Kesara for this guy. No, no, no. What will be will be, and what will be is Andrew will still be in my house even as I move out. So help me, help me. <laughs> you to the fly. <laughs> <laughs> I say that 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 young that young British man is just trapped in a fly body and it's a nerd's me. house. <laughs> you know, do you think we should just kill it and get over get it over with? Just kill him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it's, it's me, James Mason, and I really do. I really oh, James, do James you're here. Fly. This is a fantastic opportunity. What well, if we, know. what if we teamed up and solved mysteries together? You and me, James I, Mason. And I Vince would, Mason. I would love that. Um, you and your, you and your Copeland directorial self, <laughs> and me and my silky smooth ways. Yes. Yes, uh, it, it's sardonic versus expressionist, and I, 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 I think we're going to get along just fine. Yeah, um, but all the imitations aside, and don't worry, Mr. Mason will return in, in not too short a time. Um, C- Cary Grant might turn up as well. Uh, will he, darling? <laughs> oh, he will, darling. Yeah, yes, he Ryan, will. Ryan Frost Tuesday. is going to listen to this and just like slam his, <laughs> slam his hand on the table going like, that's not a good impression, that's not a good impression. Um, Judy, Judy. Adam Adam Roach is also just going to be listening, just going like, "What? Why? Why can't why? you just? Why? And why can't you imitate Hitchcock right? Because I don't have to. I can just do it however I want." <laughs> yes, yes, Ryan, calm down, calm down, old boy. Settle why not have a down. drink? <laughs> if I do the if I do the true speed of Hitchcock, it sounds like Alan Rickman playing Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> that would be I, I. You know, I mean, like talking about great voices, Alan Rickman would be like. An amazing hitch. I want you to go into the shower, Miss Lee. <laughs> I am not a good director. I am an exceptional director. <laughs> Actors <laughs> should be treated like cattle, Mr. Potter. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Ballyhoo Review Impression Hour. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Kevin, am I an angel without a dick? Is this supposed to be funny, Mr. Smith? 
Um, uh, the Metatron. So, uh, oh, I love the Metatron. Um, but um, you just lost my camera. Now, um, yeah. before we get into it, though, um, we're breaking a rule, and uh, we should quickly explain that um, uh, we, we I've wanted you on for a solo episode for a little bit, and Hitchcock is very, very permanent in your mind, and I, I'm glad that you coaxed me into bringing him back from the Shamley Dead, um, because. There was originally a plan to do a lot of Shamley supplements, and there may still be that possibility, but for now, it's kind of like, it's it, we're focusing on Jacques Tati right now, but I didn't want to miss a chance to talk about Hitch, and you brought up two films that we didn't do deep dives on. We actually talked about them more in terms of themes, and I'm wondering yeah. what possessed you to bring up this particular thematic discussion. Well, two things, and if anyone's listened to The Man Who Knew Too Much, they know the story. North by Northwest was my first Hitchcock, mm. and what a Hitchcock to start on. I mean, just to bring a Beatles, uh, a, a Beatles reference back in, that's like your first album of theirs being Sgt. Pepper. I mean, he doesn't get better than this. And the... <clears throat> In, in like watching that, I got me into like spy fiction and everything. And I read the book, The 39 Steps. And I mm. love that book. It's still one of my favorite books. I read it every other year. And I didn't know it would be, Hitchcock made it into a movie for a long, long time. Mm. Like I was only familiar with his 50s America stuff. And when I saw The 39 Steps, I was blown away because to me, Everyone, everyone talks about the, the wrong man theme. It begins with the lodger, absolutely. But the 39 Steps was the first one where he really, in my opinion, had fun with it. Mm. Um, like to me, that's the movie where you see the actors. It's Robert Donner, isn't it? Um, yes. They're like almost literally winking at the camera like we know this is bullshit, but just go with it. She's going to have a good time. And then like you take that theme and you take it to the 39 steps where it's still really fun, but it's so glamorous mm -hmm. that I would, I would say, you know, North by Northwest is a remake to a point, but it's a remake with, okay, we're now going to do this very, very differently. Yes. And in today's parlance, you might even call it a reboot of if the character, if the Richard Hannity character was like rebooted from a series, that's what, north by northwest would it become yes we we wanted to make our version uh, we wanted to make our version of look i really like the ghostwriter film i really do so let me explain it in these terms we saw the first ghostwriter we we did the ghostwriter and then we said what if we did the spirit of vengeance and that became north by northwest it's the spirit of vengeance of alfred hitchcock movies yes <laughs> no it, it, you're right it is a reboot it is a reboot, yeah. and it's and it's one that it's it's interesting that Ernie Lehman, the way he talks about it, it's almost as if this is just imbued into him from pop culture. It's pop culture yeah. influ influencing arguably more popular pop culture because, mm -hmm. and I know that like it's like a weird terminology, but North by Northwest is iconic. It's iconic yeah. from an American standpoint. The 39 Steps is iconic from a Hitchcock standpoint and from a British standpoint. But it doesn't possess the same commercial marketability that North by Northwest does. And I think yeah. a lot of that has to do with the fact that you have Cary Grant in North by Northwest. Whereas Robert Donat, I get the feeling that Robert Donat is undervalued by today. 
Um, yeah, I, he was he was the Cary Grant of his moment. I mean, because he did like Count of Monte Cristo. I mean, he did. He was a big name draw. Goodbye, Mister Chips. Goodbye, Mister Goodbye, Mister Chips. Yeah, um, yeah. Later replaced by Peter O'Toole. Um, but yeah, yeah. Donna just keeps getting his movies remade with like classier actors. Um, but like, you take. <laughs> Are you, you throwing you take, shade? Like, the Are you throwing shade at Robert <laughs> Donut? That poor, a- Donut. That poor asthmatic. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, he he was such a fun actor, and Cary Grant also was a fun actor. But Cary Grant is playing Cary Grant, even by his own admission. Mm-hmm. Like you're seeing the same performance out of him that you did in To Catch a Thief. Mm-hmm. Um, Donut has more more range, but like. Again, it's, I want to say they were deliberately having fun on the first one. And if you ask me if I have a preference, it, it's hard for me. It depends on my mood. If I want a shorter movie, I'm going 39 steps. Right. But I was watching North by Northwest yesterday and I was just, I had forgotten again how glamorous that movie is. And you look at the influence that movie had because a lot of people call that the first Bond movie. Right. Because from Russia with Love, they pretty much replicate the uh, crop duster scene with mm-hmm. a helicopter. Yeah. But then on the flip side, North by Northwest wasn't the first time he remade 39 Steps. Yes. Like you could argue Saboteur was the first time he really made remade 39 Steps. But as much as I enjoy Saboteur, Saboteur was made as a jingoistic, yeah, America's number one, we're entering the war and we're going to win movie. And so that gets bogged down with a lot of patriotic talk um, when the bearded lady gives the speech uh, about freedom. um, It stops the movie dead. Mm. And the difference between that movie and the two we're talking about, at no point do those movies stop dead. They are continually moving. Yeah. um, In regards to Saboteur, we we should, I, I, I should guess I should give my two cents and explain why, I, I agree with you, but I, I admire the movies that Hitch did under World War II a lot. And, yeah. I, and I believe a part of it is, is that the World War II era films, when you grow up being exposed to Casablanca, World War II vitriol really gets into your skin early on. So I mm-hmm. appreciate propaganda films. Now, that being said, I have learned and are, am aware of where they fall short due to the jingoism that is involved. Yeah. But you're right that there is a there is a stopped a stop dead moment in those films, whereas 30, 30, 39 steps and North by Northwest never really stop. Thirty nine steps, oddly enough, has patriotic vitriol in it, um, yeah. a, in a pre war context or a, a call to war. Um, now it doesn't bog it down the way Lady Vanishes has much more of this. Oh um, yeah, Lady Vanishes. Yeah, like, Lady Van- yeah. Lady Vanishes in a lot of ways. Like it's funny, I was thinking about it not too long ago. Is that there's the Grand Budapest Hotel reminds me a lot of the Lady Vanishes because mm-hmm. there is the underbelly of war in there, but we're also focused on these main characters and their little mystery, and then the war kind of ties itself into the plot to a certain respect. Um, well, and I think like. This is going to sound weird. I think the British were way more used to being jingoistic. Like, you got to remember at that point, there was the Empire. Yes. And so we were so used to, and if you read a lot of fiction from that time, you see movies from that time, like Britain's number one, like permeates 
those entire yeah. films. And it really wasn't, I don't think, until World War II that American movies and the American psyche became that we're number one. Yes. It's, and so it was a correct. very new, yeah, it was a very new, uh, almost braggadocious approach to jingoism. And I don't mean any of this as one's better than, like, uh, politics aside, I'm not saying one country did it better than the other or anything like that. It's just you can see the old God giving way to the new God. Well, there there's a... From the from the state side of things, and I don't know how much of this permeated British film to a large extent, because foreign cinema, including Britain, is still an area of expertise that I do not possess. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm learning more about it, obviously, through Tati with French cinema. Um, Hitchcock is my biggest exposure point, apart from maybe the the Archers. And mm -hmm. the the thing that on the estate side that I can say is that World War One and World War Two are both coming out of isolationist um, yeah. mindsets. We don't want to go to war. When we go into war and we come out of it, we are we are like haunted by the horrors of those wars. As is Germany mm -hmm. to a lot of extent, or at least Weimar era Germany before everything gets overhauled by that asshole. And mm -hmm. um. Uh, the like one of the biggest films of its era was All's Quiet on the Western Front, which was a big, big, uh, big like movie. indoctrination against war. And yeah. um, my four years in Germany is a similar situation, which was made by the Warner Brothers um, based off of the uh, memoirs of an ambassador to Germany. And my impression of it is, is that the jingoism that it possesses American propaganda during World War II um, doesn't really begin until the Warner Brothers are allowed to kick the door down with Confessions of a Nazi Spy. But Hitchcock, yeah. because he's in Britain, he's able to permeate that vision more clearly. And what's interesting, as we talk about 39 Steps here in a minute, the it's allowed to go through. But mm -hmm. Hitchcock doesn't say the word Nazi. And I think his screenwriters and him are very clever at not saying it directly so that it can circumvent the American censors, whereas the British are fully aware of what's going yeah. on. Well, have... it, it's almost like the British attitude is like, well, the Germans are getting up to you again. Yeah, classic. <laughs> oh, oh <laughs> God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Maud, get but over no, here. Do you see that? They're doing it again. <laughs> You're, you're right and like the way you know and again like it's the way that the two countries talk because britain were very indirect um we you know the phrase i love to use is use 10 words when two will do america is very direct so even by avoiding the word nazi he's using language in such a way that is so familiar mm -hmm. that you're right we know exactly what that means yeah. um there's like <clears throat> the joke that if you're like oh we ran into a tiny bit of trouble oh that was a disaster <laughs> like we know what that means whereas in in america you say that very literally of like oh okay well as long as you weren't inconvenienced and <laughs> so you know like that directness is there for the British audience, whereas in America, like, and you get it to this day, everyone's like, oh, it's so twee and charming. But, like, it, it's just the way we use language is very, very different. Yeah. And what 
in regards to the 39 steps in particular, the the what's funny about it is that I'm amazed and we're just kind of diverging away from World War II talk into just film talk mm-hmm. here. I'm amazed that the language barrier or the contextual barrier wasn't as true and wasn't as true an inhibitor as one might think for Hitchcock's yeah. films coming over to America. And what I mean by that is obviously America is a country of immigrants and a big melting pot. But not everybody's probably going to get British humor right off the bat. I mean, uh, my 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 earliest exposure to that idea is that Monty Python's not for everybody in this country, which is wrong, <laughs> but but it's true. Um, or even the, the, the Edgar Wright Cornetto trilogy doesn't always translate to yeah. people. That not everybody finds it funny. And again, they're wrong. But, they're very wrong. Yeah, they're extremely wrong. But Hitchcock's work seems to translate just fine, and I think it's because Hitchcock is enamored with British culture, but he's not like soaking it up with a sponge. He's using what he needs to tell the story for his current audience, but he's going off of broader storytelling tropes that break, break, break world barriers to a degree. But, but I think what Hitchcock does is he brings artifice to both. If you look at his British films and his American films, like his American films are not representative of American culture. No. they are a british person's idea of america Mm -hmm. and i believe he did that deliberately like if you look at um his films like a lot of them are to do with class a lot of them are to do with background which again is something that exists in america but you don't talk about it whereas in britain we're obsessed with it and he does the same thing with his British films of like, all right, this is how the world sees Britain. So we're going to, everything stiff up a lip and everything is like, yeah. rah, rah. Um, which honestly is not true or I don't believe was true at the time. Do you mean you guys don't stop film sets at four every day for tea all the time? Well, no, that happens. Oh, that does. Okay, thank God. <laughs> thank God. I didn't want James Whale to just be an asshole. I wanted this to be a normal thing. Um. No, I, you're right. Um, actually, it's funny because we could talk more about the American representation of things, but like sticking to the British first for a minute here. Yeah. The British element of it all. You know, I, I feel like what's funny about Hitchcock, and I, I, I attribute him as the sole reason this is possible for an intercontinental communication, is that I feel like while possessing a lot of stereotypes... Hitchcock also breaks a lot of them by showing the working class or the or the middle class or even the upper middle class and expounding upon all layers. He's not focused on one. It's not like he's making a castle movie. Like I I, I would no. I would say in broad terms, he is actively showing England as it exists as a whole and not just as a like a a, a relegated stereotype to kings and queens. And in a sense, like that street level mentality, which comes off of these penny dreadfuls that he clearly devoured, he is providing a a a weird international cooperation tool. It's it's very much you can you can talk you a, a guy working in the docks in New York can talk to a guy working in the docks in London and and have a conversation that 
that works well between the two because they're not so different after all. They sometimes yeah. share the same views. Sometimes they elect the same dumb presidents. It doesn't matter <laughs> what what they do. They, they sometimes they have yeah. the same connective tissue. And uh, the I think with within regards to Thirty Nine Steps in particular, it's interesting that this film rarely goes into the uh, upper class territory that you might expect. Considering, well, well, the exception being the professor. Um, yeah. And, um, but oh, go ahead. Yeah. You forget that you forget that line when they're in the audience mm-hmm. and they're like yelling things at Mr. Memory. So just to give everyone context of this movie, um, it begins in a music hall um, of a guy called Mr. Memory who can recite any facts. He memorizes 500 facts a day. Isn't that right? He, he's like a British, and... he's like a British Quentin Tarantino, but he knows more than just movies. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and doesn't rip off everyone. And <laughs> there's a, everyone knows my opinions in Tarantino, Sorry. but there's this wonderful moment when a guy yells out like, "What was the cricket score in Lords of 1899 or something?" And his wife hits him and tells him not to be so common. Now, partly why that's oh, funny. I have to correct you. Her, I have to correct you. What a part of that is um, what causes Pippin poultry? Oh, yeah. That's what right. causes, yeah. causes yeah. Pippin poultry? Yeah. I'm thinking of the guys from um, Lady Vanishes. <laughs> yeah. But the um, but she hits him and says, don't be so common. Now, what's funny for me as a British person, and I don't know if this translates to American, is her accent is what I would stereotypically call common. Mm. So, you know, there's that whole like putting on airs and graces and everything that – uh, it's so like it's a multi-layered joke that like Hitchcock's gonna love because Hitchcock, you gotta remember, was the son of a working-class grocer. Yes, and he has worked his way up into society. He is now a successful filmmaker. He is hobnobbing with, you know, these actors who have private educations or we confusingly call public school educations, mm-hmm. and um, so that joke is really really funny, but very uh, emblematic of how. Hitchcock is portraying British culture like we are obsessed with clocks. Yes. Um, I will respond by saying that the joke lands for me in the context of let's let's put it in the context of a sitcom plot. A sitcom yeah. plot might have a woman wanting to impress the neighbors or a man wanting to impress the neighbors, but some other person in the family is just acting like themselves. And yeah. they 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 want them to be proper and be like the idyllic perfect family so i feel like mm-hmm. the idea of the perfect family is relegated in the same thematic structure as this idea of class in britain like there mm-hmm. the keeping up with the joneses mentality is very much a, an american trait that i would argue still exists like did exist prior oh, to 50 suburbia there's still the idea of not wanting to be looked down upon but i think it permeates better after World War II, when you have yeah. a suburban culture that maintains a value structure of if you don't have the latest refrigerator, you're fucked. And yeah. that that mentality, I think that's I think that's what allows the 39 steps to translate and keep itself going through time as opposed to being relegated to a dustbin, because mm-hmm. not every not every Hitchcock film in the British era is immediately marketable or translatable today unless you're a Hitchcock fan. Arguably, yeah. a lot of his silent output is not to the Hitchcock standard that we know and love, with the exceptions yeah. of The Lodger and 
other films. Like I would argue Downhill has a lot of Hitchcock permeating through it, but it's also not a Hitchcock plot, you know? Well, and I think like, this is why 39 steps translates so well, because it's such a basic plot. And if I may surmise the plot is this guy goes to the musical leaves the musical a woman comes and is like oh can i join you and he's like sure and i'm like wow that's risque for like 1930 something mm-hmm. and they get into the apartment turns out she's being followed by two guys um she gets a knife in the back and he's like i just wanted to eat my haddock damn it because he's seducing her while cooking haddock and he has to go on the run Yes. And as he goes on the run, he finds out, like, she's talking about the 39 steps. He's trying to figure out what the 39 steps are. And the whole time he's being chased by the police and the bad guys. Yes. Um, and eventually it comes out that he's innocent after he's been handcuffed to uh, the femme fatale of the, um, of, of the movie. Uh, uh, typical Hitchcock blonde. A um, lot of sexy foreplay and and double entendres with them there, especially with handcuffs, because who knew it was a kinky bugger. Um, it's funny, it, not only kinky, but apparently not above um, uh, putting the actors themselves through a little bit of yeah. a kinky scenario. <laughs> I have I have to share this as we go along in the plot. There's some production yeah. pieces that I've picked up. One of them, yeah, one of them from the Secret History of Hollywood, um, told this beautifully. Um, that he showed them a pair of handcuffs like sh- while showing them the Scottish Moor from which they escape in the car. And he produced a set of handcuffs, and he said, by the way, I need to shackle you together to make sure the cuffs are the proper size. And uh, then after having them walk around to make sure that they all fit well, quote-unquote, he claimed to not have the key, went off to go get the key. And then an hour later, a telegram was sent saying they can't find the key and they're looking everywhere. So Robert Donat and Madeline Carroll got to spend a lot of time together. But what is revealed is that Hitchcock had given the key to a security guard and told the security guard, now don't you fucking dare tell anybody where this fucking key is. You hear that, Jerry? Your job is on the line. Don't tell anybody. I want this trick to go off beautifully. <laughs> like yeah. it, it, it's 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 one of those elements of like him getting him his actors into that mindset, and the plausibility of this plot requires him to test this out to to yeah. find out will these actors get it? Are they going to take it mm-hmm. too seriously? I mean, like Truffaut Truffaut interviewed Hitchcock in a wonderful series of interviews that most of the audio is available online. He said, Hitchcock said this to Truffaut, if you want to analyze everything in terms of poss- plausibility, then you end up making a documentary. So long as it's not dull, I think we can do whatever we like. We can have all the freedom. A critic who talks to me about plausibility is a dull fellow. Um, yeah. So Hitchcock is saying this show can be dull sometimes. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, but but so like this. I don't agree, old boy. I think this show is rather marvelous. <laughs> Oh, James Mason, uh, you laconic bastard. Are you telling me about dull? Mm, well, I, I, I would say it's not so much dull in my performances. It's more reserved. Reserved? Oh, would you say it's rather British? You shut your mouth. <laughs> you shut your damn mouth, you damn yank. I'm going to go off and have some cognac. I'll be back later. Okay. Come, Leonard. Let's go. Um, <laughs> um, but the plot you just described. This idea of a man on the run. Donat is commonplace Canadian staying in London for uh, staying in Britain for like an an extended period of time. 
comes as up, you do. Come, yeah, as you well, yes, you do. You always go to London for an extended period of time. It's oh, never, of you don't go for a day. Do you? You, you no. never go for a day. Um, even when I lived in London, I would go to London for months at a time. And if you talk to some people, you can't even afford to live there for a day sometimes. But no, nevertheless, no, you go all. for as long as you can. And uh, he, him coming across Annabelle Smith, the spy, we are we are given him like we ground him immediately with the idea that yeah. this is just an average person. This is a theme that carries on in Hitchcock's plots where you have a common person thrust into an otherworldly situation or another uh, uh, another plane situation of like extenuating circumstances this is a this is a plot that extends off of these spy novels that buchan innovates he was a big fan of buchan but he changed Mm -hmm. a lot of this plot the biggest one of which is that the 39 steps themselves is not the 39 steps from the book 39 steps in the book is a literal series of 39 steps that lead to a German landing (laughs) field. Whereas the 39 steps, as Mr. Memory says, is an organization of spies. Uh, Well, you know, and in the book, he just randomly ends up at the head of the 39 steps house. Like, hello, I need help. (laughs) Oh, you're an evil person. Whereas here, like they, he actually knows he's tracking down the guy. So like the plot of the movie makes way more sense than the book, but to your point of plausibility, that book moves at breath, uh, breakneck speed. Like at no point are you questioning the logic of this novel. Mm-hmm. And arguably, you're never really questioning the logic of the Thirty Nine Steps. Um, yeah. Now, what this comes into the question of like, how does a modern audience like view that? And to me, I think a, a modern audience, to some extent, has become a little bit. I feel like we're spoiled with all the details that we expound upon on the internet. And it's not yeah. a bad thing. I love I love hearing fan theories. I love hearing fan breakdowns. Like it's it's a it's a glorious achievement to cinema's power. That being said, I think that the suspension of disbelief gets lost at times. I remember yeah. being told that they somebody wouldn't go see Grindhouse because they didn't believe that Rose McGowan would have a machine leg gun. How does it fire? How does it work? And my response was, "It's a movie. Like it's." I, I didn't see it because it was Tarantino. Oh well, that well that was Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> that was Robert Rodriguez's uh, I like, I like segment. Rodriguez. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you see, you you ignored uh, uh, you ignored uh. something out of bias. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I have a question for you. Like, based on this modern world that we live in. Yeah. Does the plausibility escape you because you're engrossed? Like, like how do, does the plausibility um, call come into question for you as a modern viewer at all at any point? No. So it was kind of funny. Like, this is such a weird left turn, but um, please indulge that. So yesterday I watched North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, I, I watched 39 Steps the other week. I watched North by Northwest. And I had nothing going on, so I watched Burn After Reading, the, the Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> yes, you did. You want to talk lack of plausibility? <laughs> and like, and, it, and in that movie, they're even commenting on it themselves. J.K. But Simmons, like, yeah. But it's, it's such a... Like watching, I didn't appreciate the time until we're having this conversation. But like, that movie is so implausible and so silly. And like, if you break it down to the sum of its parts, is nonsensical. Mm-hmm. But because you are engaged with these horrible but ultimately entertaining characters, and it doesn't hurt that all the actors in it are horribly charming. 
which again is a Hitchcock trope. Yes. Um, that you just go along with it. And I, I realize now I just watched two movies back to back yesterday that I'm like, none of this makes sense, but uh, let's go. Yeah. Let's have some fun. Yeah. And I think that I don't know that um, suspension of disbelief has actually left us. I think we want things to be more logical now of, all right, I'm going to believe that this kid has the power of spiders like, I don't need to know how the atomic science works that he got bitten and is now a Spider-Man. But you have to show me how he became Spider-Man. Does this Spider-Man fight anybody cool like an octopus doctor or a goblin <laughs> that's green? I think I so. I haven't seen him was, up here. <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen him. Well, I... I You'd be disappointed in the state of cinema today, bitch. I'm just going to say. Well, well, wait. It's not like they got a big purple guy played by Josh Brolin to just run around and <laughs> snap the whole world out of existence, right? That that didn't happen, right? Hashtag Team Thanos. Oh, God damn it. Not, not, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, I, I gave you guys Marty Scorsese. What more do you want? <laughs> 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 but are we saying Hitchcock is God? All right. Um, <laughs> yes, but, I am. Yes, yes, we are. <laughs> so I mean, I. But again, like to 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 like use Ben after reading as an example. Again, like Thirty Nine Steps. That's a movie where the actors are literally winking at the camera and saying we're having fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and that to me go, goes a long way. Um, to bring it to uh, North by Northwest, I would say everyone else in that movie except Cary Grant is having fun. Cary Grant mm. looks confused the entire time, and that helps sell the plot of the film. Yeah, he's also meant to be 35. I was texting Zach yesterday, and I'm like, <laughs> he's supposed to be 35, and then. And then um, the beautiful Ava Marie Saint comes on. She's like, oh, I'm a 26-year-old girl. And she's actually 35 at the time of filming. And I'm like, just make him 55 and her 35. We'll, we'll go with it. It's fine. They're ridiculously good-looking people. Yeah. And, and, adi and additionally, Joyce uh, Jesse Royce Landis is a year older than Cary Grant, but she's playing seven. his mother. She's seven, seven years old. Seven, yeah, yeah. So she's playing his I'm mother. Playing his mother, which is nuts. <laughs> I, I, I've, yeah. I've said it before on Shamley, and I'll say it again. Like it's just it's such a weird ageist casting. But yeah. I think Hitchcock, knowing that he likes to work with the same people, I think he just saw Landis and said. You would be wonderful for this role, even though this is this like even though the age thing doesn't make sense. It's a, he yeah. knows she's such a comic performer because the mother, like, like there are there are elements of thirty. She's a highlight of the film. She is like she is part of a scene that, that Cary Grant apparently thought was ill directed that I think is brilliant, which is they're in the elevator, they're looking, they're, <laughs> they're, they're looking at the two henchmen, and she just goes. You aren't really trying to kill my son, are you? And then everybody in the elevator laughs, and that gives Carrie the chance to escape. Yeah. And L Ernie Lehman in the commentary said, "Like, no, I think it's brilliantly done." And yeah. the, you know, to take it back to Thirty Nine Steps for a second, the we are also talking about a difference in filmmaking style and technique that we talked about in The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, yeah. And within the plot perspective of Thirty Nine Steps, I feel like. Hitch is more intent on the serious and the sincere than he is in North by Northwest, which is an obvious given. But yeah. there is a there is a much more rooted in expressionism tactic attached to Thirty Nine Steps 
as well. Whereas when he gets to America, there is a streamlining of his filmmaking yeah. style that he doesn't really break out of until Psycho. Like he does very much cruise at a certain altitude with his own flourishes that he developed in America, yeah. overtaking the expressionism roots that he learned from Long and Murnau and Pabst or wow. um, and um, pa- Paul Lenny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, so, cause I find, I find that cause I think I have a slightly different perspective to you in that in the 39 steps, that movie never lets up. That movie is just constant motion. Even when it's a seduction scene, um, and I use that term very loosely for this scene is when they're handcuffed to the bed. Um, that sounds like Fifty Shades of Hitchcock. Um, <laughs> the movie doesn't stop, and even the way they talk is very rapid fire, which was pretty common for that era. Mm-hmm. What surprised me yesterday rewatching North by Northwest was how much Hitch lets scenes breathe. Mm-hmm. Like there is a lot of moments in that movie of silence, mm. and he is not afraid and I'm not contradicting myself of like, he never stops the plot. Like there's none of that, like, Oh, I'm going to give a patriotic speech now. It's kind of stopping, but like, he's not afraid to like, okay, we've been going at 50 miles an hour. I need to slow it down to 20 because he's just miss met Miss Kendall and they're going to be all sexy sex. And he allows that seduction to actually be very seductive. And it's a very sexy scene between them on the train. So I was kind of surprised at how much he's like allowing the audience just to like catch their breath, which I don't think he does in 39 Steps. No, and I'm, and I should clarify what I'm more referring to is that there's a darker tone in 39 Steps that I think 30... That oh, North, it's Mina, yeah. Yeah, North by Northwest is a less mean movie. I guess that's more what I was going for, but you're right. Oh, okay. Yeah, but you're right. Actually, you brought up a really good point. North by Northwest indulges in silent motif i turned the sound off on north by northwest this morning and watched the airplane sequence i didn't need the sound i didn't need the sound um i turned off i turned off the sound during uh him and eve kendall in the train i didn't need Mm -hmm. the sound especially in the train car because i'm watching those two mouth breathe on each Mm. other like crazy (laughs) oh god Darling. Yeah, it's 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 just I I wrote a note that like he must have taken notes from Notorious and thought, yeah. how can I, you know, extend that out? And like and again, like 39 Steps is one of a many different puzzle piece in which Ernie Lehman is constructing North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. And within 39 Steps is interesting because you also have a lot of themes that permeate Hitchcock's other works. Um the idea, the 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 uh, blatant disregard for uh, Christianity and his views on uh, and his views on the 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 uh, Judeo Christian upbringing that he had, um, uh, the Jesuit upbringing. I'm sorry, the Jesuit upbringing yeah. that he has is explored here because he has the Scottish uh, the Crofts um, mm. uh, and. The, the husband is so much more pious and on his religious high horse, but he's also not above playing into he's a, the Scottish stereotype of a cheapskate and a money grubber. <laughs> like, which well, he's is, also he's also a domestic abuser. Yes, he is. Like yeah. when when uh, when Hannah leaves the house, you hear the mm-hmm. and the wife scream, 
and oh, and they it, uh, reveal yeah that he put his Bible in the um the front coat pocket that she gave to yeah. him. Yeah. Oh God, that's yeah, that's rough. My girlfriend was like, "Did she just did she just get slapped?" And I was like, "Yeah," and she's like, "Ew." <laughs> yeah. Well, and and you're right because it is it is I don't want to use the word mean, but it is a darker film because. Hitch is allowing that stuff to happen. And it's one of the moments in that film where, and maybe it plays differently to 30s audiences. I don't know. But like, you're having a really fun time, really fun time. And that is one of the few scenes in the movie where you have that sense of dread. Yeah. And you're not scared for him that the police are going to catch him. You're scared for her and what her actions mean. Exactly. And I, you know, in, in, when we like, I, I kind of want to use this as an opportunity to bring up Madeline Carroll um, mm-hmm. as um, uh, as as our heroine here, because I find the most interesting part of dissecting these two films back to back is how they approach the main female lead or the cool blonde, if you will. Yeah. Um, the terror in which Madeline Carroll exudes from being thrust into this situation is is strangely dark compared mm-hmm. to how he'll approach it with North by Northwest, which is a little bit more streamlined spy plot kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, it, it, like, you know, in a, in a conceivable world, yeah, her just being rushed off to rushed off into this plot for no reason is 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 rather harrowing and rather dangerous. But it's it's imbued with a good chunk of the humor. The good chunk of the humor is between those two. And I feel like it's interesting that he, he subverts that idea once he's perfected the idea of the Hitchcock blonde post vertigo, Mm -hmm. post vertigo, you get the ability to have Eve Kendall be Eve Kendall. There's no way he would have done this early on, but like Madeline Carroll is like the, the origin point for the cool blonde. Like that's yeah. where he really starts to solidify this idea of the ideal Hitchcock woman, which is well, and he's giving the women characters agency. Yes. and we we've talked about this before. Like in the original North by Northwest, it's again very much the father's story, but it's set up that the woman, is, the wife, is a champion clay pigeon shooter. Oh yeah, who's I know. yeah, um, who, man who knew too much. Yeah, yeah, man who knew too much who who kills Peter Lorre. But then when you get to 50s America, like Doris Day is given nothing to do in that role mm-hmm. other than scream and cry and then basically put to sleep by her husband and then sing at the end. And then the flip side and of that right. is, the, is the exact opposite for 39 yeah. Steps in North by Northwest. And I think the difference is, and this is something that we can talk about, when he does Man Who Knew Too Much, he's actively wanting to readdress a story. Yeah. In North by Northwest, he's trying to find something other to, to to do other than the film he's intended to do at MGM, which is The Wreck of the yeah. Mary Deer. And Ernie Lehman is a Hitchcock fanboy, and he's mm-hmm. writing a Hitchcock fanboy script, which is yeah. which is an interesting concept. And in a sense, all of his ideas that are coming through, he he purportedly said, "I didn't remember." any but i don't remember seeing 39 steps since i was a child and so it must have gotten into my subconscious and mm-hmm. that's how he was able to develop the ideas of 
forming the script for North by Northwest, that combined with Hitch's just going like, you know, I always wanted to have a chase around Mount Rushmore, and I always wanted yep. to have a scene at the UN where somebody says, <laughs> I won't continue my speech until the delegate from Peru wakes up, and then they tap him and go, oh, no, he's dead. Like, that yeah. he's, you know, it's an indulgence. And mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, like, it's funny to think about, like, Hitchcock goes off and does Psycho after this, after North by yeah. Northwest. I have an argument that North by Northwest is the origin point for him wanting to make something like Psycho because he starts remembering how fun these tropes were that he worked in in the past in Britain at, at yeah. Gainsborough. And that, in a sense, motivates him to be like, what if I just went back all the way to something like The Lodger or yeah. Blackmail or Murder? What if I went down that road again? And- well, and you, 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 you're getting into a point, though, with, with Hitch that I wonder, I think there was less censorship in Gainsborough days, mm-hmm. in, in his mind. Like, there, was, there were rules you couldn't cross. But if you look at the scene where um, the, the female spy goes up to Hannah, like, basically, like, hey, let's go to your place and have sex. He's like, okay. And then when he's trying to escape um, and he's talking to the milk uh, milkman, he's like, I need your coat. Oh, I can't give my coat. Look, I've been carrying on with this broad upstairs and her husband's going to find out. He's like, I've got you, mate. Mm-hmm. Like, these are kind of, these are not scenes you associate with 1930s cinema. No. But when you get to North by Northwest, where in theory there's less censorship, but again, it's America is much more, at that time, a much more puritanical country. There's a line that got dubbed because um, when they're in the train, she says, I never discuss love on an empty stomach. The actual line is, I never make love on an empty stomach. Yeah. And that was deemed too risque for a woman to say to a man. Because mm-hmm. how dare a woman um, have sexuality? How dare she? How how dare she? And then you get into Psycho, where it's like, all right, I'm showing one in her underwear. <laughs> and Look, I, I, was, like, I was kind last year. This year, I just yeah. don't, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> well, and there's, there's another scene in, um, in, in 39 Steps that I'd forgotten about. Um, and I remember texting about this because I wanted to bring up Frenzy, but he, he's on the train and it's two guys holding up um, women's garters and bras. Yes. And they're having this very flippant conversation about some maniac sex killer on the loose. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what year was this movie made again? I thought like you couldn't say this. Nineteen thirty five. That's because the I, I can de- directly attribute this to there is so much more leniency from the British censor side of things when it comes to se- yeah. talk of a sexual nature, whereas horror was a bigger well to do in Britain. Mm-hmm. Like horror oh, was, yeah. was seen as a far more uh, hideous commodity compared to sex. And it's even now, which which is interesting because the stereotype of British being reserved, we don't expect the sex to be of a frank discussion. And yet it is. If anything, America is much more prudish by comparison. It, yeah. it is ex- exemplified by that line change in North by Northwest at a time mm-hmm. when we're literally a year before Hitchcock will break that door open completely. Like <laughs> it's almost as North by Northwest is him peeking in a door and then Psycho is him punching the door with his fist. Yeah. Which, by the way, there is a to take it back to 39 Steps, there is a production story that I I I'd, I'd forgotten the scenes with him and Ashcroft with um him and Peggy Ashcroft talking. Apparently, Donat kept cracking up, and then Peggy kept cracking up, and then by take five during that conversation, Hitch went up to them, looked at them sternly, 
went over to a studio light and punched it with his fist. Just flat out punched it with his fist, walked back, sat in his chair and said, again. And then <laughs> filming went off without a hitch. As, as, oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. How long have you been sitting on that line? Oh, all week. He's been sitting in on, on it all week. He knows he's fucking clever when he wants to be. Um, I tell you, I tell you, Hedgehog boy, that that was rather rather witty. I thought. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. Someday this man will be a podcaster. Someday you give him time and patience and a, a little bit of uh, you know encouragement. No, it, what, you, what's what's a podcast? It's a thing that nerds do. Um, they talk okay. a lot about how Star Wars isn't done right anymore. I don't know. I I just thought it was a cool laser show with space stuff happening on it. You know. What's a Star Wars? Uh, again, I can't. I don't know how to define it for you. It's it's a thing that happens in space. There's a stars and there's some wars. That's all I know. Um, I'm gonna go and have more cognac. It's only eleven in the morning and I'm running behind on my schedule. Yeah, don't get me started on the Last Jedi. I will be drunk all night. <laughs> oh, I heard about that. Yeah, Bloody no. space Mary Poppins. <laughs> You know, some people would say that that movie's a masterpiece, but I, what do I know? I'm just a man up in in in, in heaven, quote unquote. <laughs> like others would call it an absolute storyline mess. The, but the, who am I to say I'm James Mason? James, can we at least agree that Indiana Jones is is a per- perfectly fine trilogy until that fourth one? <laughs> There's no fourth one. It's only three movies. It's a trilogy. Okay, that's right. That's the right answer, James. Now let's just go and drink some cognac. Thank you. Um, <laughs> now, um. But the but the height the, the idea of like like Hitch as a director is interesting to talk about within this context too, um, and the I I I don't mean to shift the gears on it necessarily, but we when we talk about Hitch as a director, we have an implanted vision in our brains of what he does as a director, and I think a big part of it has to do with the fact that he storyboarded everything to death. Um, yeah. And a lot of the prep was there so that it worked like an instruction manual where it's just like, look, just just do the thing here on the painting. You see like that. that. And the what's funny is, is that when you hear a story like that of him punching the light, it's it's a young director getting his rage out. Yeah. But it's funny that that kind of temperament finds itself in a different sinisterish form down the line with something yeah. like the birds and Marnie um, and becomes more into a psychological obsession than an external force. Um, yeah. And I, but I feel like when you talk about him as a director, a director as we know it is supposed to be the one who's motivating the actors, who's supposed to be getting them into character to provide instruction for it. Hitchcock trusted his actors to do what they're doing because he casted them to do the job. And yeah. he only gave a few directions to say Eva Marie Saint on North by Northwest, which is lower your voice, don't use your hands, and always look directly into Cary Grant's eyes. Like, and that, mm-hmm. that could be an anecdote, but I think the majority of it is the correct answer, which is he's only giving instructions where it's applicable to the technical aspect. Yeah, he's not. Was was sorry, I was gonna say, was that she the actress where she was like, Hitch, I'm worried you're not giving me any direction. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? It's like, no, no. you're doing what I need you to. That's Marty Landau. Marty Landau, um, oh. they were in the auction house scene, 
And Marty Landau saw that he went over to Carrie, he went over to James, he went over to Eve, and he gave them, whispered all in their ears, and he went to Marty and said nothing. He said, Hitch, you, do you need me to adjust anything? And he's like, Marty, if you're doing something wrong, I'll tell you when you're doing something wrong. Right now, you're projecting very well. And uh, yeah. Which, by the way, if you want to hear a good Hitchcock impression, listen to Martin Landau's Hitchcock impression. That shit is fucking accurate as sin like it is the best hitchcock impression i have ever heard ever yeah and that includes can, can anthony we, hopkins <laughs> can we talk about how great landau is in this movie though yes we can he found because he found him so off, wonderful he found him off of broadway just like shirley mcclain he found him on yeah. broadway doing a show with edward g robinson oddly enough so there's a nice connection like like, yeah yeah <laughs> hey, hey hitch hey. get over here yeah, look at this guy, Marty. Yeah, he'd be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go on over here and try to be in Planet of the Apes, but they're not going to let me it's, do it because of health issues. Nah. Um, it's just the end of free call. <laughs> no, it's the end of my career. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he found him off of Broadway. He put him in the role of Leonard, and this actually leads into a very interesting discussion, the character of Leonard and how well Martin Landau plays him. We're dealing, oh, yeah. we get to deal with homosexual subtext, which is oddly enough a thing that isn't extremely present in 39 Steps by comparison. No, and, I, I would I would say that's where the Brits, well, actually, I wouldn't, I don't know. But, 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 but what's interesting about it is that the early British films don't shy away from that either. The Lady Vanishes has Charters and Calicott like verging, <laughs> verging on the vestiges of getting it on in the bedroom. Like, I know that. See that 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 I I would say that's a misconception because there was a there, there's a comedy duo, uh, light entertainment from the fifties, uh, Morecambe and Wise, who they would do recurring sketches where they were both in bed together, but uh. it was only to have them um, in the same room for a comedic setup. But none of that. There was no subtext to that sketch that they were a couple. It was just oh, these two dudes are in bed together comedy goes okay so then that and i so when i saw that them in that movie that's how i read it gotcha the criterion uh, uh the criterion experts i guess would want to get into a duke battle with you because that that was the subtext that i actually picked up from that from it and oh, then listening enough. to them but it it, it you know it, it, i i think when you when you're discussing homosexual subtext in golden age hollywood as we discussed with J. Allen Rickard, you know, some things are just read in too far. And this could be a situation where somebody was reading too much into it. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to North by Northwest, it's inescapable. Oh, it's, it's inescapable. It, yeah. It's inescapable. The woman's intuition line is there. <laughs> but what's funny is, is that Ernie Lehman must have not been paying attention because when he wrote it, he didn't intend that. It seems like yeah. Hitchcock played on it. And yeah. Hitchcock was not above doing this. Clearly, the entirety of Rope is playing off of... The entire Rope is that subtext, yeah. yeah. Rope is, is subtext. They the, had to make it less gay. Yeah, they did. They had to take out the idea that James Stewart's character had, like, feasibly molested those boys in, yeah. in school. Like, so, like, he's not above tapping into this territory. And I find it interesting that for all the things that he streamlines and makes a little bit prettier in North by Northwest, he's still not above putting in those, those underpinnings that create something out of what was conceivably a British sensibility 
that yeah. America then was able to adopt after years of frustration and trying, you know? <laughs> well, and I mean, his character is problematic in the sense of, again, like certainly for that time, you were aligning homosexuality with sin. But at no point, because if you think about Saboteur, Mm-hmm. The, the the main villain gives this whole speech about how he was such a pretty boy with curls mm-hmm. and he and it's played very very creepily mm-hmm. it's a very creepy scene and in north by northwest outside of the way landau is um you know presenting himself and that one line about the women's intuition it's never like camp. It's never over the top. It's like, it, it's almost that stereotype of like, oh, well, they tend to be very beautiful and stylish and and, and silky. And that's how he's playing it. Um, and it's really wonderful to see that none of the other characters around him react in repulsion to it. They just accept it. And I think that was very forward of the film outside of that initial problematic, oh, he's a bad guy. Yeah. And and consequently, when you have when you have this portrayal of homosexual subtext in here, I think that I feel like what's interesting about the way Landau plays it, it can be read either way. It's yeah. not it's not a cemented end all be all. It's not like rope. We get to yeah. deal with something that's much more ambiguous and interpretive. And I think that a normal viewer who may not, you know, blindly be uh, uh, skewed in bigotry could watch the mm-hmm. film and enjoy it as much as somebody who's enlightened and wants to expand their mind and to the possibilities of what cinematic subtext looks like. Um because it's not shoved in your face, really. It's a line. It's no. it's a throwaway line from an outside perspective. It's Cary Grant's POV, and we're yeah. seeing the gun that Eve Kendall has shot with blanks. So, it's you know, it's not even intended to be the main focal point. Our focal point is Cary Grant's POV, learning what information needs to be known. Which, yeah, what needs to be known in a Hitchcock movie? Not much, just enough Not to make much. you get in the character's mindset and get on to uh, the adventure. You could say you need some kind of device to do this. Oh, what, what, what would you call such a device? Well, um, I, I was told about a device that's used for hunting tigers in Scotland called a mm. MacGuffin. A MacGuffin, you say? But the funny thing is, is that there's no tigers in Scotland, and so that's <laughs> not a MacGuffin. <laughs> It's a story. I love it. It's a great story. Because this is, so every one of his wrong man chase movies, he mixes it up. Mm -hmm. And I want to go through a quick like evolution of it. Yes. So the lodger, like you're following the guy thinking he's the bad guy. Yeah. And then it becomes, oh, he's the wrong man. Then you get into the 39 steps. Oh, she's told him what the 39 steps is. He now needs to get to Scotland to, um, you know, uh, defeat the bad guy in north by northwest he has no fucking clue what's going on mm-hmm. you don't find out what the MacGuffin is until the last 10 minutes mm-hmm. and when i was younger that used to bother the crap out of me because <laughs> i'm like oh wait now there's a microfilm okay and you know as i watch it now older i just think that's such a genius idea because i realize 
at no point am I questioning it. It's mm-hmm. just that, it's that plausibility thing again, like, oh, Cary Grant's in trouble, off we go. And yeah, it I, I don't know. It's just genius. But I, I, I showed I showed my girlfriend 39 Steps and North by Northwest. Now, she preferred North by Northwest, which is a perfectly acceptable answer. Yeah. Um, and the one comment that I that stuck out to me is that like with North by Northwest, she was like, it took me a minute to understand like some of the plot stuff going on. But what but at a certain point, I just got into the into the mode of it. And so Hitchcock's devices clearly work. They clearly yeah. work. They are storytelling devices that are of little significance that leads mm-hmm. you down a positive path with these characters because the characters themselves believe in it so much that you as the audience believe that they need yep. to get this information, this MacGuffin. In the 39 Steps, the organization itself and the information in Mr. Memory about it is our MacGuffin. And yep. the information, uh, or specifically the information that Mr. Memory has that the 39 Steps want, um, which mm-hmm. is a plan of some kind for uh, uh, British naval warf, uh, British air, it's a, it's air, a, air force. It's like a new air fighter. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a British an, air force, an, like an RAF, top of the range. An RAF thing, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, it, it doesn't matter. people. It, 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 it's like a microfilm hidden in a statue. Exactly. Like, which is the, uh, the MacGuffin for, uh, North by Northwest. North by North. Although I'd argue that the MacGuffin, of North by Northwest is is dual. It's the microfilm, but Leo G. Carroll says the MacGuffin out loud. Government secrets and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Get in this plane. We're going to South Dakota. Woo! <laughs> Leo, yeah, I like the it's... idea of Leo G. Carroll being a frat boy on vacation. About <laughs> 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 Rushmore. Woo! But like, yeah, it's. Again, and there is no wrong. There's no wrong or right answer. Which one do you prefer? Thirty nine steps to North by Northwest. I think it depends on what mood you're in. But again, his approach to both of them is like he gives you a lot more information in thirty nine steps up front, whereas in North by Northwest, it's just like reveal something cool, and then it's like. 20 minutes of chase scene reveal oh Kaplan doesn't exist mm-hmm. okay this is weird 20 minutes of chase and like yeah it's your confusion of the plot is um Thornhill's confusion yeah and what's great is um Cary Grant didn't understand the plot and Hitchcock refused to explain it to him <laughs> <laughs> no no not gonna Ka- no. Hitch why won't you do it now now you you just just stand there and look pretty, pretty boy. <laughs> I'm 35. <laughs> but here's I'm 55. You're 35. Yeah, you, you're you whatever age I fucking tell you to be, Carrie. Now get over there <laughs> and make love to that 26-year-old woman, quote-unquote. <laughs> but the age difference is less creepy when you learn that she's 35. Yes, exactly. <laughs> See, I'm not an entirely pervert, perverted monster. <laughs> like that... that 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 whole age difference thing, you know, it's funny. Like, I mean, Donat and Carol don't seem to be on too opposite an end of spectrum, but no. but like the, I think that that's a some that's something that happens as Hollywood goes along. Like, you still have a lot of leading men that are a commodity at the box office, whereas yeah. the the actresses are relegated to the stockyard the moment they turn thirty five, and that yeah. that is interesting to 
play them down. And then when they get to a certain age, they have to play mother roles like Jesse Royce Landis. It is like, yeah. it is very, very, it's an unsettling part of Hollywoodness, uh, like strictly. And I think Hitchcock delves in this more than I would want him to, but it's also like, yeah. it's not his fault. You know, like, it's, it, it was a standard of, of the day. And sadly it's, it's still a standard. Um, and I what was it Anna Kendrick who was, uh, she tweeted out, uh, congratulations to all the leading men out there. Your future leading lady was just born. Uh, I thought it was Aubrey Plaza because I remember her making. Oh, a it might have been Aubrey Plaza. I remember her making a comment about having to play a mother in the Child's Play remake. Uh, yeah. it was something around that sense. But you're right; it still exists today. We still have this casting age issue thing. I think we've gotten better with it, but we're still not where we need to be. Um, yeah, and I think that there's like. That, but like the age difference aside, though, like they are kind of like Cary Grant comes off as a very youthful performer up to a certain point in his career. And I think North by Northwest yeah. is the final moment where it's fully present. Like, yeah, but, but he's going gray. Yeah. You, you can't hide much of it for long, you know, and he, well, and I think he recognized that, which is why he didn't do much after this movie. Yeah, well, I mean, like, and you you watch those older movies, and I always think this, and I say this as someone who turns 40 next year, like, in the older movies, I always still feel like I'm watching grown-ups. And, you know, like, in this one, it's very much you're watching grown-ups. I'm older than Ava Marie Saint in that movie, and she's still older than me. Yeah. <laughs> are you sad that Ava Marie Saint is younger than you, Andrew? Is that I am. You? Yeah, yes. you are? Because she's still alive, a, and yet she's still how, somehow younger than you. <laughs> it's a sobering thought that when Mozart was my age, he'd been dead for a number of years. Yeah, but you know, like w with within Eva Marie Saint, let's talk a little bit about the cool blonde for a moment. Oh, the, cool the, blonde. the Hitchcock, the Hitchcock woman. She is the ultimate Hitchcock woman. Yes, um, I I would agree. Apart from Grace Kelly, um. And let, in, me, let me rephrase. Yeah. She is the ultimate Hitchcock blonde character. Good. Okay. Good. That's that's a good yeah. clarification. Yeah. Because I would. Because Grace Kelly is the ultimate Hitchcock blonde. Yeah. And uh, and and by the way, when I say Grace Kelly, I mean Grace Kelly in Rear Window. Um, but that's my yes. my main point of discussion there. Uh, her other appearances, I think she is the Hitchcock blonde, but it's it's a different scenario. But the idea of the Hitchcock woman and the ideal woman is a constant source of uh, debate. And I think Vertigo is the real pinpoint into it. But North by Northwest and the 39 Steps um, treat the characterization with a little, more, a little bit more agency than mm -hmm. other characterizations tend to give, tend to get. Um, and I think it's, when it comes to these flight of fancy plots, these man on the run plots, it's a characterization that I think Hollywood has borrowed from more than once and continues to. And it, it always leads to the discussion of an empowered female lead. And yeah. for all of the Hitchcock negativity that can be expounded upon, which we'll get to a story in a minute, because I do have one from a book that Andrew gave me not too long ago. Um, <clears throat> there is the, there is the sense of, Hitchcock providing a gateway for strong female characters to exist on screen in action settings, which is a debate that continues to this day so far into the 
Black Widow movie finally getting made. For years, there was discussion of when's the Black Widow movie getting made, and when it gets yeah. made, it shows like I like the Black Widow movie. It's a it's a capable female led action hero movie, and arguably Hitchcock Hitchcock starts that thread, but Thirty Nine Steps doesn't get it right right away. She is very much mm-hmm. a kind of a damsel in distress kind of vibe, but yeah. her attitude is the differentiation between a damsel in distress and somebody who is capable of handling like, like in space balls with, uh, with handling the Rambo scene, <laughs> you know, like that, that like, cause when Madeline Carroll gets fled on the run, like her, her attitude shifts inside that lodging house when they're handcuffed together. And yeah. we start to learn that she's not just a stick in the mud who Robert Donat has to just carry along on this mission. Like it's, you know, she is a character that is capable and in fact provides a lot of important information as she, cause she won, she escapes. So she's clearly capable of escaping, especially when Robert Donat's asleep to get out of those handcuffs. Mm-hmm. And then she stumbles upon outside of the lodging house, the two people that were after her and him trying to search for them and learning that Donat was telling the truth. Mm-hmm. The in uh, the the way it's inverted or switched around in North by Northwest is that Eve Kendall herself is an active part of the plot itself and in fact a double agent. Yeah. So I love how Layman, without even realizing it, took a character that Hitchcock had developed and perfected it. And yeah. from a screenwriting standpoint, that must have made Hitch very happy because he looks at a character like that and says, "Say this seems familiar, mm-hmm. and this seems like something I can work with." And Eve Kendall's perfection of that is she has an actual story. She's not just a one note. Like, no. If I have a criticism on Rear Window, it's that um, Lisa Fremont is sort of one note until she proves otherwise. She she's too perfect. Yes, and and that's why I don't want to marry her. (laughs) I mean, and and as you know. Again, an unfair criticism of Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly was an immaculately beautiful, elegant princess or woman. So when that's all you give her to be on screen, that's all you're going to get. Um, now she does, if you look, she does get agency by the end because she's, she, does. she becomes the active hero of the film, whereas Stewart's the stagnant. But I'm yeah. sorry, I continue. Yeah, sorry. But when you get into um, when you get into the uh, Miss Kendall character, like everything about her, everything she does, every line that she has, there's absolute reason behind it. Mm-hmm. Like there's no like when when Grace Kelly's character comes in in Rear Window, it's all about oh here's dinner. When are we going to the theater? Isn't everything pretty? Don't you love fashion and there's a lot of fluff in behind what she's saying. And that's the point because by the end of it, she's an action star. But with um, Kendall, like even down to the, I never discuss love slash make love on an empty stomach. Like the reason she's going to have sex with him is to like basically get him to be where she needs him to be for her purposes. Right. And that's why, I mean, you, you think about her compared to a lot of the earlier Bond girls, she's way more accomplished than most of the Bond girls up until probably Daniel Craig, unfortunately. What are you saying? Are you saying that Miss Moneypenny wasn't capable? She could talk me down. 
She shot him. I, 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 <laughs> God damn it, Andrew. I will not have you besmirching the Bond franchise, even though I besmirched it several times in front of those the Saltzman and the Broccolis. I will not have oh, it. Nice. <laughs> You're, you're talking to a guy who loves Bond and has owned the entire series. Clearly not. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, because this, this, I mean, just to just to justify my accusations, like this is called the first bombshell. Which is uh, a point of discussion is that Hitchcock was approached with Dr. No mm-hmm. um, or Bond in general. I don't remember if it was Dr. No or... I I actually want to say I think it was from Rush with Love because they always wanted um, oh I forget the original director's name but they always wanted him to do the first one because he was just known for being able to do these big sequences yeah and they got Terrence Young instead to do Doctor No and that yeah that that um uh the 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 idea of well first of all I think Hitchcock would want to do Goldfinger because that just seems more fun but yeah <laughs> um. But the idea of him and Cary Grant playing James Bond, like that was an idea that was floated around, apparently that the Mm -hmm. the it all you're right. It all stems from this film. This film is the template for what you'd want a Bond film to be. And what's interesting is that a Bond sort of deviates from it slightly because because it's a different sensibility coming through. Um, I'd argue that the British British standpoint is very present in the Bond films, especially Mm -hmm. early on. Because they they will take their time even more than Hitch in certain respects, but as we've stated before, that's not a detriment to Bond early Bond no. movies at all. Um, and additionally, you're right the Bond character the Bond women aren't as fully formed as Eve Kendall yeah. is. That's an innovation that Hitchcock can lay claim to, and mm-hmm. it, it it sets the groundwork for other interpretations of strong female leads and involving women in a plot beyond just domesticity. And now in the formation of, and the origin point of this Hitchcock blonde, I think it's important to bring up Hitch's darker side to an extent. Um, Mm. And we've discussed this several times on Shamley and we're not going to go into a whole, um, uh, a, a whole well to do about it. I really recommend you listen to the Marnie episode for a lot of that discussion, and even a lot of the uh, Alma Revel episode that we did with Olivia Carmel. Um, Which both great episodes, and really impressed how you handled the Marnie um, episode because I mean I loathe that film. Yeah, and um, and as do I. Um, but Jack Hanley, who was the guest on it, convinced me that it's not worth throwing in the garbage. Like it's not a throw yeah. in the garbage movie, but it. It, it, it deals with flimsy psychology, to say the least. When the, the one thing I took away from that movie, and I, I, went, uh, I went back and listened to it, was you were both like, the music's so good. Yeah, the music is I great. I was like, all right, okay, I'm just going to throw on the soundtrack. And you're right, the music is, and I don't think I ever noticed the music because I was watching the subject matter, and it's just icky. Yeah, it is. It is icky. And this ickiness can be traced back as far back as 1935 during the production of mm-hmm. uh the 39 steps um or b- just around just a little bit after perhaps um uh this is from the book the 12 lives of alfred hitchcock which i've started digging into um as early as 1935 film weekly ran a piece in which barbara j buchanan asked hitchcock why do you hate women 
The question was prompted by Hitchcock's recent film, The 39 Steps, in which Madeline Carroll is handcuffed to her co-star, Robert Donat, and hauled across the Scottish countryside. Blah, 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 blah. Buchanan said that said this denied Carol her dignity and glamour, a suggestion that ironically, if judged solely by today's standards, might be constructed as more than a little bit patronizing towards women. Hitchcock denied that he hated women, though he did jokingly call them a nuisance. And Carol was put through the mill in order to strip away the surface layers and reveal the person beneath. Nothing pleases me more than to knock the ladylikeness out of a chorus girl. Paralleling his situation with Fontaine on Rebecca and Hedron in the Birds, stories also spread, some by Hitchcock himself, that he deliberately caused Carol upset when the cameras were off, pretending to have lost the keys to the handcuffs, meaning that she was handcuffed to Donat for a large chunk of the first day of filming. He assured the public that his scheme was all in aid of improving her as an actress, and as she entered into the spirit of the whole thing with terrific zest, I remember, though, that she had a friend watching on the set that day who came up to me and approached and reproached me for my rough handling of her so this is not the explicit uh uh accusations that hedron makes yeah it's seen as the practical joke Mm -hmm. but it is it's a weird that this practical joke is an origin point for an archetype because if if they didn't do that conceivably donat and carol wouldn't have had the chemistry that they had and it wouldn't allow carol to become a character now i'm not excusing that at all like you shouldn't do that you shouldn't just handcuff two people together like that it's not hard to be nice people no it's not it's not hard to be nice but i find it interesting that the formation of this character stems off of this and hitchcock when she read the script for him for the first time, she put on an act and Hitchcock said, mm-hmm. no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to be you. This is where you start seeing Hitchcock's brain working about the idea of the formation of the perfect woman in his eyes. And in a mm-hmm. respect, it's innovative at the same time. It's also disturbing. And yeah. we, we, when we address it, the way he approaches Madeline Carroll in 39 steps is really a character to service Robert Donat. By the time you get to North by Northwest, the Hitchcock woman has evolved that she stands apart from the Donat or the Cary Grant of it all. And when you watch the evolution in between, you do get to see how things are reworked and shaped. It's an ever-evolving process, much like the basic man-on-the-run plot itself. Yeah, And I would argue that he does it even earlier in The Man Who Knew Too Much when you have the mother. The mother mm-hmm. proves proves the capable, strong element. And then the consequence on the other side of the 39 steps is that Madeline Carroll is kind of relegated to, uh, you know, being attached to Donat and having slight agency, not the same yeah. amount of agency. Although when he comes into the car compartment and kisses her to try to throw him off of being chased by the by the men after him, the police, uh, mm-hmm. she actively gives him up. She actively gives yep. him up because he's just like, I don't have time for this. No, fuck you for kissing me. <laughs> and I like that. I love yes. that thing of just going like, excuse me, you don't just get to kiss a random woman. That's very, very ahead of its time by comparison very. to Cary Grant entering the room and having even Marie Saint going like, well, say like, yes, why not? I mean, it's well, Cary Grant, they, you know. But they 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 do that they do that trick twice in the movie because there's the scene where he's escaping the hospital, and 
Um, <clears throat> so we haven't really gone too much into the plot of North by Northwest, but it's 39 steps per set in America and he ends up in hospital at one point. But he's like escaping the hospital and he climbs out of the window and then climbs into another window. And there's this uh, beautiful young lady in bed mm-hmm. who's like screams and says, Stop. Wait, I'll stop. And then like she puts on her glasses and so she's like, Stop. Ned Carey Grant goes, ah. <laughs> then leaves, which, you know, good on Carrie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just that that thing of the women in his, because he has that unfortunate quote, and I won't say the full quote, but it's along the lines of a wife in the kitchen and a mm, in the bedroom. And I will say that uh, that is a very common thing, no matter how much agency any of his female characters get at the end of the day, because the end shot of North by Northwest is the infamous train in the tunnel yes. um, shot. And, you know, while she is using sex to her advantage as a plot point, um, you know, that still goes into Hitch's more lascivious side of this is how I view women. There is not a woman in the Hitchcock canon outside of the mothers who are just there to be a capable character. And that's it. Because even in um, uh, 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 Man Who Knew Too Much remake, half of Doris Day's lines are about getting laid again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and Granted to have another kid, but still. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that for elements that progress, there's also elements of regression that have to do with it in a societal standpoint. And this pu- pulls us back into the discussion of American versus British sensibility. American yeah. sensibility had the wife in the kitchen or yeah. the woman in a sexual position. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't allow for the freedom that he had earlier to let a woman say no to a man or to even grab a shotgun and shoot Peter Laurie. Like that mm-hmm. that 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 that's a like a weird like trade-off on the one hand yeah. she's allowed to be stronger on the other hand her priorities are split between her duty to country and her duty to carry and that mm-hmm. that provides and it provides a very unstable uh unstable viewpoint on how we view the hitchcock woman because there's a lot of benefits and a lot of detriments and they don't mm-hmm. just stem into the psychological or the uh, abusive treatment of women. They also have to do within this societal standpoint that America itself finds itself in because you have yeah. to judge Hitchcock's career as Britain v. America Donna justice. You can't have, mm-hmm. you, you can't separate American culture from his later films until you maybe get to psycho but even psycho has a lot of it has a lot of societal ills attached to it but you know let's be honest hitch's nastiest film and this is nastier than Marnie, um is frenzy frenzy yeah and part of the reason it's so nasty is he made it in britain Mm -hmm. um and again uh the wrong man um the wrong man motif and how he evolved it for frenzy is you know who the right man is and the right man is uh, a literal sex killer. Yeah. Um, And he just shows, even by today's standards, like just gratuitous violence towards women. And, but still, even the love interest in that, in that movie is there for the hero to get at the end of the day. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I, I find it interesting too, like that. I, I have a question. When you look at the American films, do you find them less progressive than the British films? Like, let's ask the blunt question because I have an answer, but. I, I, I would say in some ways they're more and in some ways they aren't. I think it depends on what you're looking at. Um, I think like his British films, like we discussed earlier, there's less censorship mm-hmm. um, when it comes to sex, but the violence is more refrained. Whereas when you get into, and it's worth noting, Frenzy was made in the 70s when like censorship just went out of the window finally. Um but when you get into the American films, he's allowed to be more violent, but you know, the sex has to be um, filtered in, uh, you know, through like romance and, and rose tinted glasses. So I think that's where you get the progressive and the regressive until, like you said earlier, psycho psycho, he just like kicked down the door and went sod it. I'm going to town on, all of this as sex as violence. And we're just going to enjoy both of them. Robert Walker has a quote in strangers on a train that sums it up perfectly. Crisscross. Crisscross. That's, that's basically what we're dealing with. And I agree. That's, that's my answer. Is that like, it's a trade-off um, mm-hmm. from a, from a broader standpoint, I'd argue that the earlier British films have far more progressive values into it is even into the violence because the violence portrays itself in a way that we still see today. Whereas I feel like a lot of the American aesthetic has been lifted from a visual standpoint and some thematic standpoint, but it's been mostly the visual aesthetic and uh, Brian De Palma uh, borrows from that. Like it's like, it's quoting from the Bible at a, at a, at a church gathering. Like it's not, I feel like, I feel like the overall intent of the British films find themselves more firmly rooted in, in the present only because we're allowed to be darker and those films were allowed to be darker as well. Well, he blew up a bus with a kid on it. Yeah, exactly. Which is a, which is frankly, now that Ballyhoo is opening up the Hitchcock door, sabotage should just get its own uh, examination and breakdown at some point. Stay tuned. Maybe Andrew will come back for that. Who knows? I I love that movie. I'll come on for that one. Then then it's settled. I put you in the calendar. Let's see. Andrew sabotage. Was was, was I in sabotage, dear boy? No, no, no. I wish I had blown you up in that bus, James, but uh, no, no, you weren't there. No. You, 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 and many, many others. Yeah. I'm going back to my cognac. You know, speaking of, let's let's talk about this because, like, North by Northwest. Let's in a plot sense, let's talk a little bit about the villain plot and yeah. and Van Dam, and not Jean Claude Van Dam, just <laughs> Van Dam. My mind immediately went you know, time cop. You know, I got yeah, my my mind immediately went. Brad, did you write North by Northwest? And he's like, no, I didn't like this movie. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, uh, Van Damme is a character, and the basic plot is that Van Damme believes that Cary Grant's Roger Thornhill is this Agent Kaplan. The Agent Kaplan yeah. does not exist, but. Van Damme is just so sure because his henchmen wouldn't make a mistake that egregious. Oh, no, not my henchmen. Yeah, did, did you just, did, you didn't just do what you did the last time, which is just blindly observe somebody raising their hands when the name Kaplan was announced, <laughs> did you? You didn't do that. You, oh, you, you, this is years, this is years later when he's in prison. Oh, you assholes. Oh. Why did you, why did you, 
I could have avoided all of this. <laughs> like that, 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 but his pre- presentation of it is of a villain who is bored. Yes. And that's what I say. He's bored with these games. He literally says the lines games. Must we like that? Their interaction, the interactions he has with Roger Thornhill are so stemmed in the idea of like, I'm tired of this cat and mouse game between us. The spy to, to versus spy. <laughs> like, to him, it's just business. To, it's the equivalent of us waking up and going to work. Yeah. Like, that's that's all he's doing. And, like, you don't really know what his grand plan is at the end of the day. Like, I don't know why he's a villain. He's just a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just plays it as such. Like, oh, Monday's rolled around again. Shit. Okay. I'm going to need you to go and kidnap a guy for me, okay? Thank you. At one point, he gets meta about it, and he goes like, um, first you're playing this role, and then you're playing this role. You know, you could, you you boys could stand a little less training from the FBI and a little bit more from the actor's studio. Yeah. And, uh, and, and at which point I wrote down, oh, snap. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then you Actually, see the, <laughs> the well, finger snap. One thing I do want to talk about, though, is... The writing of North by Northwest has some of the greatest lines Hitchcock ever put to celluloid. Mm-hmm. And I always say, my wife gets annoyed at me because I'm always quoting this line. I quote a lot of movies at my wife. But if, one of the funniest lines in the world to me is that you cannot take me. I've got two ex-wives, a mother and several bartenders depending <laughs> on me. And it's just like so freaking funny. And then you get the... Well, yes, no, they, they poured whiskey down my throat. No, they didn't offer me a chaser. <laughs> and, like, he literally insults the, the, the police officer. Like, oh, my, what's the police officer's name? Um, it's Emmanuel something. Oh, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. Um, but the, the, the police officer, like, says his name. And he's like, yeah, I'm telling this officer whatever. And he just then looks at the officer and goes, no, I didn't believe it either. And he's, I mean, this is why Cary Grant is so good. He's so good at that prat fully playing drunk. Being oh, Klinger, Klinger, I think. Yeah, yeah Klinger. And every line in this film is just hilarious. I mean, what does the Roger O. Thornhill, what does the O stand for? Nothing. Uh, well, we know what it actually stands for. We know for. why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I worked with a cokehead one time named <laughs> David O. Selznick. And uh, the O meant nothing. And he put it there yeah. just to sound fancy. That's fucking mm-hmm. right. <laughs> I don't need to explain myself to you. So if you if you were to ask me which movie has an edge over uh, between the two, it would be North by Northwest yes. because Lemon does such a great job of the writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every every line has meaning, even the throwaway line. So like that whole scene in the police office, uh, police station where he's drunk is to make you like him more. Yeah. And he provide and he lays it with detail too. He told a story in the commentary about how he actually spent a, a couple days uh, or that he spent a day going through the process of being booked for drunk driving with the help of a friendly judge. He's a method yeah. screenwriter in a certain respect. He spent 5 days at the UN trying to find where a perfect <laughs> place for a murder would be, which yeah. let let's 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 switch a minute here. Because 39 Steps production stories are a little light. I, I wasn't yeah. able to find as much. But North by Northwest, I found like a treasure chest that we we wouldn't have time to get through every single thing. But amongst this is that North by Northwest experienced controversy. 
during its very production, whereas consequently, The 39 Steps was just another film from coming off the Gainsborough lot. Very little yeah. controversy stemming apart from the journalists noticing that that noticing Hitchcock's behavior and pointing out the Carol debacle. But yeah, let's talk about some of them. First of all, that UN shot is an illegal shot. Uh, that <laughs> they apparently did not have permission to film at the UN. And so Hitchcock, um, Robert Boyle, the production designer said that they used a laundry truck uh, to his recollection. And they put the yeah. Vista vision camera in the back of this truck and concealed it. And they just had Cary Grant walking up to the mm -hmm. UN building to which I, my response would be like, as soon as he walks in there, people are going to be like, what's Cary Grant doing at the UN? Wouldn't there be a news story of Cary Grant yeah. entering the UN for no reason? And I guess not because I didn't yeah. find anything. Um, but you do see the security staff of the UN and not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> The behind-the-scenes documentary, Iris is in on them. <laughs> and you hear uh, Eva Marie Saint talking about it, going like, eh, we got away with a crime. <laughs> we couldn't, we didn't go to jail. <laughs> and then we also see in the inside, though, that the UN, they did clearly capture some form of the design because this is matte painting heaven. The matte painting oh of the, God, entrance, the entrance way to the matte painting yeah. is... Oh, it's it's gorgeous to look at, and the the win, the the overhead shot of him running outside of the UN. That is such an amazing shot. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like it ages at all. No, no. But it also plays in again, though, to the artifice Hitchcock loves to throw in his films. Yeah, because the ironic thing is, is he later made a movie with Peter Fonda called The Wrong Man, which should be the ultimate like exposition on this theme of Hitchcock and he shot it as like a faux documentary and it's dull and it's dry and it's sad and like no fun in it. And part of that is like the realism Hitchcock is throwing at you. Whereas yeah. in these movies, he's like, well, the plot's fake. So everything else might as well just be fake. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. No, yeah. I like I confess and the wrong man are points in his life where he is very, very interested in delving into something more serious. Um, yeah. uh, the wrong man is based off of a true story. So I think mm -hmm. there was an attention to detail that he couldn't escape, which is telling the facts of the case, which is mm -hmm. something that David Fincher doesn't really do in Zodiac. But I don't care because <laughs> I like Zodiac. But then Again, I, a very entertaining movie. Yeah, and then I watch Mank, and I'm like, "That's a good movie." You're fucking wrong. Um, yeah, <laughs> but um, uh, but with with the flight of fancy element of it, yeah, the matte paintings and the process shots of um, rear projection of driving, and they don't they don't inhibit the piece. And I no. would argue that a lot of people give the the background plates and the driving process shots of rear projection flack in Hitchcock movies, especially in the later years. Arguably, it's perfected in North by Northwest yeah. because of the plane. Mm -hmm. That plane is rear projection going over Carrie's head. It's seamless. It's seamless. Yeah. <laughs> Consequently, in 39 Steps, we only get one shot of that gyrocopter, but it sticks in your head. Yeah. But it is clearly not a gyrocopter it's 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 a it's a it's a aircraft that doesn't exist mm -hmm. it's something that doesn't exist and what's more it's 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 only shown in one shot to yeah. implicate 
that something is chasing him along with the police as well. And Mm -hmm. the benefit that both of these scenes end up having is actually that they're shot conceivably on location, which I found interesting to 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 examine because Hitch seemed to like the studio way more. He hated being on location. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, trouble with Harry famously set a lot outside, and that's all a set. Yeah. Because he can't control the weather. Yeah. Can't control the weather. Can't control Can't control outside elements, people. The, the police on North by Northwest was an issue because they had to hire police moment by moment, scene, set up by set up, scene by scene. And at one point, mm-hmm. they didn't even show up to the set for the Plaza Hotel location. So that yeah. that irked him. So I I find it interesting that in the early years, you know, these shots out on the moors are not in a studio. They can't be in a studio. They're too expansive, no. and there's too much depth of field to suggest that there are that that there's anything studio bound to be. If anything, they well, and they would have been too expensive to do in a studio. Exactly, Gainsborough probably couldn't afford that. Like it's it's a big no. studio in Britain, but it's not a big studio like MGM and. Mm-hmm. And you get to see him playing around in these on-location fields. It's interesting to see how he plays with it. And mm-hmm. you, it also gives you a great opportunity to look at Hitchcock in a short sleeve shirt on the set of North by Northwest, which is something I've never, uh, I, I, I've never seen outside of. Like, I've never seen him yeah. wearing a short sleeve shirt. And, you know, when you look at him, like, let's get this out of the way. Hitchcock was a big boy, but he's not that fat. He's not that fat. No. He's, he's fine. He's fine. It's, yeah. Orson Welles got way bigger by comparison. Orson Welles was a... He, well, he was a planet. You want to talk about who won? I won. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, Orson Welles did call 39 Steps a masterpiece. He loved the movie. He loved yeah. 39 Steps. Um, but uh, within that, these action set pieces, too. Each film has its own action set piece. In 39 Steps, it's the theater. Yes. Which he does a lot. In his earlier films, he does it a lot in Sabotage. He does it like Sabotage has like arguably some of the best in theater in in a theater or crowded music hall moments of Mm -hmm. violence, um, which are moments that I don't tend to love with with my with my own history. But I do appreciate what he's doing from a visual aesthetic. And the man who knew too much is the ultimate version of that. Um, But then gets arguably refined in the remake. Um, again, we, we go back to our episode, you'll listen, but, um, but I do think that it's interesting that on the other side of that, once Hitchcock gets to America, he realizes he has the resources of a studio. I can go wherever I want. Say I'm making saboteur. Mm -hmm. Let's have the climax be on the statue of Liberty. (laughs) And that gives him enough confidence to years later be like, you know, I always wanted to desecrate Mount Rushmore. I always wanted to do it. Let's just, Ernie, let's just desecrate. Four of the greatest presidents who ever lived. Right, write it in, write it in. Yeah. Like I, 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 I think that it's a crime that well, then the United oh, States sorry. government didn't let him film. Yeah, on but Mount then, Rushmore. <laughs> but then you think about it. He goes from Mount Rushmore, and he's like, "Okay, what can I do next?" He's like, "Well, I'm gonna stab a lady in in a shower." But then, what can I do after that? Oh, I can terrorize an entire town mm-hmm. yeah. and like he he really ups his game and like in the birds there is nowhere safe in that town because you got these birds flying everywhere and murdering people which okay why hitch oh no answer okay um yeah don't you think birds are creepy 
I do now. Do you want to see them kill people? There you go. (laughs) But yeah, he just gets, you're right. He gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Because if you think about um, Strangers on a Train, that, you know, it's a fairground, Mm -hmm. which again, I don't think he would have done in, in, Britain because of the outside and the rides and, and all of that fun stuff. So yeah, he's constantly upping himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that the, the, the arguably Mount Rushmore is the, 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 the tip of that, the, the, the tip of that stone because the films after it don't necessarily uh, go this ambitious. And I think a lot of that has to do with a time, a, a changing time combined with Hitchcock's um, own value decreasing to a certain extent. Um, slowly but surely because like psycho was such a small film that he kind of got pushed into the crime genre by comparison Mm -hmm. but um the mount rushmore thing it dealt with controversy again uh to reiterate the um the department of interior discovered that uh, and mount rushmore the mount rushmore offices discovered that there was a plan to stage murder sequences on Mount Rushmore. And they said, no, you can't do that. They, they did go to Mount Rushmore and they took publicity photos. But once it was found out, there was a big, big do well to do about it. Variety reported on October 17th, 1958 in the just for variety session by army archer. Um, it said that, uh, Alfred Hitchcock acceded to public pleas that none of his North by Northwest principles chase across the Mount Rushmore monument. We couldn't, if we want to, it's a physical, impossibility laughs hitchcock but his stars will still climb down a crevice between washington and jefferson's faces which they did they constructed a large scale set with the main backdrop being a 30 foot uh 30 foot tall uh, or a 35 30 foot wide 150 foot tall um uh backdrop of mount rushmore and they clearly constructed pieces of the faces and nose and it's all out of concrete uh, to accomplish this special effect. And it is it is astounding the amount of resources that he's able to possess at this time. Mm-hmm. And consequently, the Bakersfield stuff uh, for uh, the crop duster sequence, which is the most famous image of this film, is, um, is twofold. They shot Cary Grant ducking at the studio, but there's but most of the other stuff is right there on location. They, there's an actual yeah. oil tanker exploding. That's really Cary Grant running away from the fire. Uh, that is a very very dangerous looking thing to look at. Like it is, it's astounding. And apparently that overhead shot of him arriving on the bus is a matted shot because there was a town in the background. So yeah. they they got the crane up and then they cabled it down tight. So that it was yeah. steady enough to mat it, and Boyle said it was one of the most craziest things he'd ever seen, and yeah. I, I I agree. Like it is crazy to crane to cable down an entire crane for steadiness just for one shot. That's mm-hmm. that's that's a studio's ballooning budget at work there. <laughs> this mo- film was shot for seventy eight days, finally wrapped in yeah. December of fifty eight, and the budget balloons so much that Cary Grant had a stipulation that he was to be paid five grand a day every day it went over budget. Even yeah. Marie Saint was paid two grand every day it went over budget. They took their time. and Which in 58 money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of money. Again, you compare it to what he got for uh, Psycho, it's a stark difference. Um, yeah. And and in 39 steps though you know there's no reports that i found of over budgetary 
And mm-hmm. both of these films turned in a large reception and a large yeah. culling. Um, 39 Steps made its way into American audiences with surprisingly, I, I, I'm just, I guess I'm just kind of shocked at how well it translated over yeah. there. Like it, it just seemed like it wasn't going to be, I, I just, I, I guess I'm still in disbelief that foreign, foreign language films or foreign films were able to like, you well, know, like there is an important context here though. Yeah. In that at the time, Britain was one of the powerhouses of cinema right? at the time. Um, and, you know, with the um, Ealing Studios was mentioned in the same breath as Warner Brothers and MGM um, and all of that. And as time progressed on, we lost our cinematic powerhouse. So I'm not sure that a British movie like 39 Steps, where, again, the, the plot is very simple and as i say this i don't mean it, it derogatory towards the american audience in any way but right. like it's a very simple plot it's a very fun plot you've got a very good looking leading man like i don't know that it, that surprises me as much i think the viewing of the film is different like the readings of the film is different but you know it's such a that is such a fun film that I can imagine that at the time they were like, "Yeah, go see us. It's it's, it's hilarious and amazing." Right, and I, I, you know, actually, it's I shouldn't be surprised because the elements that we've just discussed for the last hour and ch- a couple hours have been the reasons why Hitchcock translated so well to yeah. cinema's audiences. Like the these films did not; these films did so well that he was able to come over to America and implement his style that had yeah. British sensibilities into the American landscape. And in a, and, and that only begins when he's able to cross those barriers of international water. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I have a review here from Variety of the 39 Steps, and uh, I want to read it because I, I think... Uh, it, it's a good uh, a little summation. Yes, they can make pictures in England. This one proves it. International spy stories are the most are most always good, and this one is the is one of the best. Smartly cut with sufficient comedy relief. Flaws in detail are negligible, but audience has to be reasonable about the luck of the hero in his miraculous escapes. With so successful a story as John Buchan's novel, with a screen adaptation more original than the book from which it was derived, and the fact that Buchan is a governor general of Canada, an intelligent working staff, a strong cast, Alfred Hitchcock, probably the best native director in England, has relatively easy time putting over a picture that is bound to appeal to the general run of picture goers throughout the world. Um, and before we jump into North by Northwest's dissection, I will point out that the 39 Steps experienced some censorship in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, this It doesn't go into specific details, but Variety reported on May 27th, 1936, uh, that to- uh, this is coming from the Tokyo offices. Film censorship, unusually mild here, has cropped up on a couple of recent importations. Some sequences of 39 Steps uh, had to go, while Captain Blood looks like it's going back into the vault for six months. So that means that there was enough of... Th- maybe some of the racier material was not to Japan's liking as a result yeah. of that. Um, 
Now, North by Northwest, though, what's funny about this classic of cinema is that it 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 wasn't to layman's words, it wasn't as like masterpiece ridden with with its reviews as we know it today. Um, I don't think everybody sees it as the American classic that it is because at the time, this is when Hitchcock is already in his television mode. He's seen as a celebrity. This is popcorn entertainment by comparison. And Time Magazine called the film smoothly troweled and thoroughly entertaining. Um, The year's most scenic, New York Times says it's the most scenic, intriguing, and merriest chase. Um, Weiler... Com- Weiler from the New York Times said, Cary Grant, a venter- veteran member of Hitchcock's acting versity, was never more at home than in this role of the advertising man on the lamb. He handles the grimaces, the surprise looks, the, click- the quick smile, all the daring do with professional aplomb and grace. In his casting, even Maurice Saint as his romantic vis-a-vis, Mr. Hitchcock has plumbed some of the talents not shown by the actress heretofore. Although she is seemingly a hard designing type, she also emerges as a sweet heroine and a glamorous charmer. All of these words are pointing out the, the frivolity of everything. Yeah. Now, Charles Champlin sees the film as an anthology of Hitchcockian situations. And at this point, Hitchcockian situations have been relegated to mass entertainment and not necessarily art. Now, yeah. this film was nominated for five Oscars. For editing, art direction, original screenplay, among them. Uh, no, it was nominated for three. Sorry. But Lehman says it was nominated for five and won none. So that's interesting that he gets the number wrong. But Lehman was nominated and he lost. Film editing, lost. Art direction, lost. This wasn't seen as art, this was seen yeah. as mass entertainment. They was enough for them to clearly recognize that Lehman deserved recognition, but Hitchcock yeah. didn't get a Best Director nomination. Nobody in Which the cast, insane. nobody in the cast, got an acting nomination. Cary Grant's one of his most iconic roles, not nominated for it. I was robbed of my nomination. James Mason should have been run for Best Everything in the movie because they, they should name the Oscars the James Mason. Yes, so I'm I, off to my Kanye. I want to be a golden statue when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I found an article during the production of North by Northwest that really blew my mind because it it's Hitchcock surmising not just what he sees as the current flaw in motion pictures, which are competing with television at this time, but something that we should listen to because and before I get into it, Hitchcock's films are now seen as art as well as popular entertainment. There's a time, as we just said, where they're not seen as the art that they are supposed to be. A lot of that has to do with Hitchcock being this popular figure in television and a promotion-hungry director Mm -hmm. by comparison to others who weren't as iconic. Like Orson Welles is probably the exception, but also Orson Welles had a different scenario attached to him. John John Huston's not presenting adventure stories on television, although I'd love that. That Um, would be amazing. That'd be amazing. Um, But there is a Variety article from June 17th, 1959. Story, not stars, must be sold to public. Hitchcock. Um, It's a pretty lengthy article, but it does go into Hitchcock 
basically saying you can't get away with that in pictures. It seems that the public will go for a downbeat ending if it doesn't have to pay for it. However, in pictures, the public wants a happy ending to compensate for what has had to, what what it has had to pay for admission, i.e., babysitter and parking. It's so true. It's we're dealing with this today. We're, yeah. we're dealing with this today. At the top of the article. It said, box office failure of so many so-called entertaining pictures is attributed by Alfred Hitchcock to the negligence of film company sales departments. The main problem, according to the suspense master, is to get those picks to public. Too frequently, he added, if the film lacks box office names or box office stature, sales departments are not sufficiently adamant in their selling pictures to exhibitors. And as a result, films do not get the exposure they deserve. Um, And he gets vocal about the subject of small pictures that have obvious entertainment values. We're dealing with this kind of situation now, except stars aren't even the selling point of the film anymore. Now it's what's our IP. What is our IP? Hitchcock used established IP indirectly to make North by Northwest. He used the IP of himself, (laughs) which is interesting. (laughs) Well, and and the, I, I would argue the IP of the Cary Grant character, not necessarily Cary Grant, but the Cary Grant character. Mm-hmm. And those, but those scenarios in both instances we see today. Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man, and Robert Downey mm-hmm. Jr. as as such is a character type and a character ar- ar- archetype that can yeah. sell a movie. But the caveat has been, as of late, it has to be Marvel. Well, and the, so the other example I give Iron for that Man. now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the example I give for that now as well as a as a different actor and character is Ryan Reynolds. That's a better example. Ryan Reynolds can never make a movie like Buried ever again. Yeah. Oh yeah. He now has to be like some version of Deadpool, which is Ryan Reynolds or or Van Wilder or the proposal. Or Van Wilder, yeah. I mean, he can do. I I've, I haven't seen the Adam Project, but I heard he's really good in the Adam Project. It's really good, but it is still like there are still those Ryan Reynolds lines in there mm-hmm. that are like equally horrifying and hilarious. Right, but argue- but because he's saying them, you're like, okay, that's cute. So in a sense, maybe he's one of those last movie stars that we currently have where you can sell the movie on his name. I'd argue Tom yeah. Hanks has this as well. Um, and which is going off of the Jimmy Stewart discussion we had in Winchester, but IP is our main selling point of stories as of late. We want to, we're not going to escape our house to the movie theater if we don't have an IP attached to it. Now, thankfully there are films that try their best and hopefully will succeed at proving it wrong. I'd argue everything everywhere all at once is being sold off of Michelle Yeoh, um, which rightfully so. And the movie is fantastic. Please go see it. Uh, the North man is selling off of a director IP mm-hmm. uh, with Bob Eggers and maybe Alexander Skarsgård. Maybe there's some True Blood fans that are just wanting to see some more shirtless Skarsgård. Um, well, yeah. You get plenty of it, trust me. Um, <laughs> and um, But the idea of these man-on-the-run films, I think the most important part of it is that it's flight of fancy. It's escapist mm-hmm. entertainment. Escapist entertainment is what fuels the box office to this very day. Yep. As always fueled the box office. In a, in the case of what we're dealing with now, though, we are dealing with the conflict of small versus big. And mm-hmm. Hitchcock, it's weird that he complains about the underexposure of these smaller pictures or these smaller stories when he is responsible for it. Yeah. And it's similar to 
Steven Spielberg and George Lucas complaining about the implosion of the box office that's that's imminent when they themselves are the reason that this happened. (laughs) Without intending to, many directors that we love and fawn over are the reason that we come to these debates about Marvel versus cinema. And uh, an argument that really is irrelevant. Marvel movies are cinema. They are. I'm sorry, Marty. They are. I, 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 but the difference is also like, where do we make the space for films like everything everywhere all at once versus another iteration of the kind of film that Hitchcock innovated, which is this escapist entertainment, this frivolous entertainment where we can just escape and watch something on IMAX explode. Like, Mm -hmm. and this is something that Hitchcock innovated and it's something that will never go away. We're always going to yeah. want to escape at the movies, and Hitchcock is the re- is one of the prime reasons that we want to escape at the movies. And we just talked about two escapist pieces of entertainment that are pieces of artistry. So there's room for both. We just have to be able to accept both as opposed to getting on Twitter and arguing passionately over one camp being mean and the other one being right or wrong. Yeah, It's all the same damn thing. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be moved by everything everywhere all at once while also escaping inside everywhere, everywhere all at once. Well, and, and there's a flip side here as well as like, and it's totally fine if you don't want to watch Marvel movies. Don't watch them. Like, you yeah. don't have to like, because that's, that's kind of my jam. Like, I do enjoy a good Marvel, but I don't want to watch every single one. I want to watch like the characters I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, don't then think that I'm lesser because that's not my nerddom. My nerddom is over here somewhere. And there's a lesson in that for people who uh, who, who will admonish Marvel. I would like to point it out to them, like, please don't forget Alfred Hitchcock, one of the greatest artists of the 20th century, was seen in the same light yeah. as a Marvel movie at times. And we have to reckon with that reality. And I think that it's important going forward to realize that there's art in every film that goes up on the screen. Um, except for the Transformers films. I can't find art in those. We'll never find <laughs> art in those. It's a bunch of robots. Even clashing. Spielberg is like, yeah, yeah I'll put my name don't. on this, I guess. <laughs> um, um, on, I make more when I do that. Yeah. On that note, Andrew, thank you for sitting down to talk about Hitch on the Run. These, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And I love. we want you back. We're going to get you on Sabotage. We're going to talk about one film this time. We're going to break down the film that made Hitchcock realized, man, I shouldn't have blew up that fucking kid. I, I got to change my directing style uh, always. Really quickly, let people know where they can find you. Yeah, so um, as Zach mentioned, uh, Pop Culture Brews, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Pop Culture Brews. And in that one, Tyler and I take movies, books, we dissect them like this, and we make a beer for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you are into homebrewing, I have a separate podcast called The Homebrew Pub, where I literally sit down with homebrewers and talk beer. And again, at The Homebrew Pub on both Instagram and Twitter. So if you like beer, I'm one of the guys you want to follow. Wonderful. And you are also part of another podcast with uh, a certain Scottish cap-wearing asshole who's on screen with you. (laughs) (laughs) 
But uh, yes, and then also please go and check out I'm Surrounded by Assholes, our <laughs> Mel Brooks podcast, um, because we just love that, man. Yeah, this may have been a secret way for us to just promote Surrounded by Assholes. We'll never know. We'll never know. But Andrew... Check out our high anxiety episode yeah. that isn't recorded yeah yeah but there well there is a shamley supplement of high anxiety with brandon rose that i recorded Mm. um uh, over a year and a half ago that you can listen to for more hitch and as far as hitchcock and the ballyhoo is concerned hitch is welcome hitch has always been welcome without shamley we wouldn't have had ballyhoo without alfred hitchcock this show wouldn't have existed so that's another thing he innovated which i'm sorry i guess in advance um (laughs) to hitchcock um for creative podcasts yeah exactly oh great i i won't take credit for that um (laughs) but um no i i and as far as the rest of this discussion i think we've we've really tackled hitchcock themes in a very good introductory way for people who didn't listen to shamley or haven't heard adam roach's series that you know if you like discussions of these themes there's 25 episodes that i that that i did one of which with andrew that you can do go down this well for um you know yeah yeah i was gonna say and if you're someone who loves hitchcock and you've got a a kid or a girlfriend boyfriend that you want to introduce to hitchcock north by northwest Mm -hmm. it is the ultimate introduction to hitchcock hitchcock he is top of his game it's fun. It's amazing. And if they don't like it, get another kid. I, I don't know what else to tell you. It's... <laughs> I think there is something beautiful that will universally translate about a man who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if you like a Die Hard movie, you're going to love a Hitchcock movie. That's not even a uh, question yeah. or a debate. Um, and that's going to wrap it up for this more thematic discussion episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back end of the show. Coming up on the program, we are going to have the return of Kev Moore with The Body Snatcher, going back to Val Luton territory by way of Robert Wise, or as Orson Welles called him, Traitor! Um, <laughs> and we are also going to have Corinne Westerman coming on board to talk about Pride and Prejudice from 1940. And we're going to be finally talking about MGM at a larger context. And uh, this will be a fun discussion about the glitz and glamour of MGM and about Jane Austen. It will be a lot of fun. Um, and But until all of this, and until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.
Bye. <laughs> you <laughs> fucking ruined it, Andrew. Right. You, I'm you, so you, sorry. You, I'm so no, James, sorry. James, don't, don't, don't encourage him. You. <laughs> <laughs>